What book are y'all reading? Uh, well, actually, today the uh, priest just gave up. Uh, uh, a show with uh, with the uh, images, but uh, we're going to be reading this one, okay. the Circle of the Way. Yeah, I'm just wondering if uh, Joko Beck seems very different in what she's saying about meditation than the the doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, with the labeling, with the words, with the being aware of your thoughts, with all that stuff is very different. I can't wait to talk to uh, Peg and Flint about that. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to share now. And um, I have us uh, on page um, uh, 185. And it's starting with, we, we can't have real relationships. Is, here, I, I need to share, but is that what you guys have? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and we read in this order. Uh, here we go, participants. We read alphabetically, so it's, uh, Dan, would you like to start? And we read a paragraph. If it's a short paragraph, we'll read two. And then Donna, Ellen, Emily, Kim, and Nelda. No, Nancy. Nancy and Nelda, okay. So what, what page is it in the physical book that we're on? 185. It is? Okay. It's in the okay. middle of the page. Okay, thank you so much. Again, reading from the screen, I don't have a hard copy. Yeah. We can't have real relationships. Can you see it? I can, yes. Oh, good. We can't have real relationships with other people when we place demands on them. If I have a demand on you, I'm not interested in you. I'm more interested in getting something. We may have this demanding relationship with our children, our lovers, our partners, or our parents as we grow older. A little louder, Dan. That would be, it would be great. Okay. We try to get something from them to satisfy our core belief. Now, of course, we're very, very subtle about how we do this. We may say, I love you. I just want to do everything for you. That obscures the demand. But until we come to terms with the center, the scream, that core belief about ourselves, our relationships with other people will be strongly about demand. I don't mean that's the only thing happening. It varies, of course, at different times, but the demand is always nearby shaping the relationship. I want this relationship to give me what I have not found anywhere else. And, and she talks a lot earlier about core beliefs and they're basically 
produced by our conditioning and things that 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 continue on from our childhood. For example, no matter what I try, I'm going to fail or people won't like me or something like that. Those are core beliefs. And until we get in touch with them, they're going to um, drive us. Do you guys agree with that description? Yeah. Okay. Or we put clear conditions on the relationship. I've had many students say to me, you know, I really love my partner, but out of self-respect, I always make it clear that if there's one lapse, one infidelity, that's it, I'm out. What are you experiencing when you say this? There's terror in being unlovable. There's a need for love to, to fill a certain thing and be a certain way. You have an image of yourself. Yeah, I'm next. You have an image of yourself that you don't respect that doesn't match your ideal. So you need another person to help hold up this image of what you want it to be. You have to make sure they stick to what you want by making it clear. When you insist on a rule like that in a relationship, you are trying to get security and control. But what you really get is loneliness, a lack of intimacy. Perhaps you have a partner who isn't doing what you want them to do. You, too, see things differently. And you're resentful and angry. You think the fault is his, of course. Where else would the fault be? The anger hits you at your core. Perhaps the way you handle this is by fighting with your partner, trying to squeeze something out of him that suits you. Now, any of us who have been in that situation know it's not a good way to go about things. We may do it, but we know it doesn't work. Thy next? Yeah. Uh, another thing we do is determine that the other person is against us. We assume we know what another person is like so we can confirm that they oppose us. But we don't know them, not really. We can see facets of their behavior, but the biggest error in the world is thinking we ever know what another person is truly like. Even if you've lived with somebody for 30 years, you don't know what they're like. Very few people know what they're really like themselves. Fighting a cover? If your core belief is that you are unlovable, you have to find a world that loves you. You want to fall in love. I used to fall in love with one person after another. If I was wearing one out, I always had another one light up because I didn't want to be left alone with my core belief. And falling in love covered that up. If there was one man who was fading, I'd be out cultivating another one. I did this for years. I created a lot of mischief too. I didn't have a practice. I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. As I did this, I created endless pain for other people and myself. None of us want to feel that we are absolutely unacceptable to the human race. We can't live that way. 
is too painful. And so our basic strategies emerge. We spend most of our time trying to figure out a way to feel anything but this pain. Where choice comes from. The first ring, our core belief, expands into what we think of as our personality. I'm a very shy person. I'm a very retiring person. Out of that core belief comes what I'm going to use to push at the outside world in order to get what I want. I want other people to do what I want them to do. I want you to leave me alone. I want you to think I'm wonderful. I want you to give me respect. I think we're back to Dan. Thank you. We may think we have this under control, but when life begins to hit hard, whether it's an event or something happening with a person, the scream of our own unbearable worthlessness arises. Why is this happening to me? We blame other people, accusing them. Mostly we blame ourselves. When we operate from this painful core belief of, I can, can't do it, I'm not good enough, I always fail, we're not free. We see everyone as a potential need filler. Can you be my teacher? Can you be my partner? Can you be the one who opens up my life for me? Or we see everyone as a potential threat. If I've been severely pushed around as a child, really hurt and beaten up and that sort of thing, my strategies are much more apt to be aggressive. I'll make sure nobody pushes me around anymore. I'll do the pushing, thank you. Either way, we're being run. We think we're running our lives, but our core beliefs are running the show. We all have major problems in our lives of one sort or another, but whether we just deal with the problem or let our core belief deal with it is another story. Is my true self in charge or is it something else? Now, the reason we sit is because we finally understand we must face this. And if we persevere over time, our true self gets stronger. It feels good, if nothing else. It feels really good. We still have problems, but they're different. We have some awareness of when we can make choices. Genuine motivation. As long as our ambition is driven by the core belief, it may be successful in the eyes of the world, but it will never be satisfying. There may come a point where you think you have everything you want, and then either you have a real-life crisis or you implode from the inside. This is because your false self has been driving you ahead, always trying to stay one step ahead of the monkey on your back, which is riding along in great shape because it is getting a free ride on, on your ambition. Then at some point, it's likely to fall apart very badly, and even if it doesn't, you may still be living a life of quiet desperation. Oh, am I next? Uh, no, Emily. <laughs> oh. oh. Uh, some people have very successful lives and some people have very satisfying lives. They can look the same, but the thing that's driving those lives is different. Practice is about moving out of a life that's falsely driven into one that has a true, genuine motivation. Yeah. 
the other side of the mountain. How do you step forward from the top of a hundred hundred foot pole? Gateless gate, case 46. Picture yourself standing on top of this pole. A hundred feet is way up. Have you ever seen pictures from a 30 foot diving board? If it were me up there, I'd be terrified. The water looks very far away. If you don't hit it just right, you might die. That pole is not for beginners. <coughs> if you don't know how to get down from that 100-foot pole, we're in trouble. Suppose it's a hazy day up there and we can't see the ground. We don't know what's down below. Maybe we just walk up on top of this pole and we don't know anything about what's below. It could be 3,000 feet of bed, which would be just fine. If you're up there, you love to know that the pole is surrounded by feather beds, but it could be rocks. It could be deep water, which isn't that bad if you have an idea of how you might get into that water an hour again. The rocks would be wolves. The feather beds, though, are what interests us most. Feather beds are very soft. The corn itself isn't clear on what's below. It could be anything. Feather beds are made of expectations. In life, we try to have feather beds. We pick our friends and even our work if we can, because we think they will be feather beds. We think we are going to land lightly. We pick a partner because we feel relaxed and happy with that person. They understand our jokes. They think we're great. We think we found a nice soft bed. And this partner perhaps thinks they've got a feather bed in us too. This usually goes well for a while, two feather beds together. It's like the early stages of practice. But inevitably, there comes a day when there's some suffering. Maybe one of you got laid off and is miserable. The other person tries hard, we all know the rules, to be understanding, supportive, and sympathetic. But then maybe they get ill. Now you're both suffering, and there's no soft bed to land on. I'm wondering if we want to look at the koan quickly. Yes, please. Uh, okay. This is a great commentary on the koan, though. Mm -hmm. With the different uh, possibilities. Yeah. And how part of our core belief is, is the, po the possibility that we bring to it. Probably so. How did that happen? I got right there. Oh, <laughs> meant to be. Good fortune. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, there's, there's many in this book. We, we spent about a year on this book. Okay. Uh, Venerable Shi Huang said, how do you take a step beyond the hundred foot pole? Another ancient worthy said, although the person sitting on top of the hundred foot pole has found an entry into the practice, it is still not real. At the top of the 100-foot pole, you must step forward and expose the full body of reality throughout the worlds in the 10 directions. 
Oh, and, and then there's Wuman's comment. Wuman uh, put together these uh, koans <laughs> a thousand years ago or whenever. I don't remember the dates. Do you, Donna? <clears throat> a thousand years sounds good. If you are able to step forward, then you will be able to. Oh, and the, the nice thing about Wuman's comment is th they further confuse you. <laughs> so, you know, like a good friend. So if you are able to take a step forward, then you will be able to flip your body around and see that there is no place that is unholy. Even though it is like this, still, how do we take a step beyond the 100-foot pole? Eh? And then he, there's a little verse. Blinding the eyes on your forehead, mistaking the markers on the scale, throwing away your body and relinquishing this life, such as the blind man blinding a crowd. Okay, so now we'll go back. Um, is it we enter practice? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, feather beds are made of expectations, I think. Okay, am I on the wrong page? No, uh, you are on no. the wrong book. <laughs> <laughs> I have silent illumination on the <laughs> Okay. Okay, feather beds are made of expectations. In life, we try to have feather beds. We pick our friends, even our work. Uh, I think we already Wait. passed that, right? We, we enter practice is the pair. Oh, okay. That's okay. Oh, okay. We enter oh. practice because we think it's a feather bed. I'm going to be enlightened. It's going to be a different world for me. I'll be at peace. Everything will be wonderful. Then you begin to sit and pretty soon it's painful and confusing. Expectation is a life based on the core belief. Expecting your partner will be a certain way. Expecting you'll be a certain way. Expecting that life will be a certain way if you just work hard enough. Relationships are confusing because we habitually use them to try and make us feel better. We want our partner to be a perfect feather bed, and we have all our requirements for what, what the partner is supposed to look like, what traits they should and shouldn't have. If we're honest about it, our ideal feather better would have to fulfill a long list of requirements. Sometimes we decide to compromise and make do with a marginal feather better. But if we have one we're going, but if we have one we're going to adopt as our very own, it should fulfill our list. And the whole thing is a dream. No real relationship is all downy pillows and feathers. Some people think raising a child is going to be their feather bed. Forget it. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Instead of a bunch of people resting in their soft beds, we have a world at war. The pain of not getting what we want is so predominant. It keeps us from being honest, genuine, and connected. Feather beds are made of your expectations. You decide that your wonderful partner isn't doing anything right or they're quiet for a moment, and you decide they think you're the wrong feather bed. <coughs> they might be doing nothing, 
when people do nothing. This is particularly insulting. Now your bed somehow has lumps. Here we are. We thought we had something perfectly soft and we don't. We're disappointed. This feather bed is ending up just as lumpy as all the previous feather beds. Often we get self-righteously angry. The anger is a good cover for the pain underneath. So has everyone experienced this where they either get married or get divorced or get a new job or do something and they think that it's going to be a feather bed? Yeah. Yeah. We may think if we could just understand what's going on, we could fix it. There's nothing wrong with trying to understand your partner. But usually, if we focus on that, we're also removing ourselves from the real emotional base of the whole difficulty. There's no way to fix the relationship without turning first to our own expectations and our design to be distracted from our own pain. Holding patterns. A lot of teaching is just holding. A student is at a particular point in their practice and you are there with them using examples and doing things. As the person keeps experiencing and learning and struggling, maybe they begin to see more clearly here and there. But teaching is a holding pattern for a long time. And then something happens. Maybe it's the accumulation of practice. Maybe life keeps throwing different things into the pot. Suddenly, a strong shift appears. Any good close relationship can be in this holding pattern. It's not giving way to this or that, believing this or believing that, or acting too soon. It's just holding and letting the practice, the relationship slowly create what it always creates if we practice with our most honest effort. Our ability to do this with everything we have increases over time. The first insights are always in the mind. And then that psychological layer starts lengthening and deepening itself. You can't always see that on the, see that on the surface. All you see are the surface troubles we're immersed in. But all that slowly growing depth is the holding. A good teacher understands what it means to hold. You don't expect people to change in two weeks. A holding pattern can take years sometimes. You have to have patience. Wait, I have a question. Where does this expression come from, a ho the holding pattern? Aviation? Is it aviation? I would think. Before, oh, before landing, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember. You have to have patience with that holding. We don't get a formula or a, or a timeline. What keeps us in the holding, even if we don't know when it will shift, is aspiration. It's that possibility of the other side of the mountain that is in each one of us. If we can feel that, it will drive our practice and our relationships. When you are who you are is life itself. The knowing and understanding that comes out of that recognition can hold a lot. So I have a question right here because I'm still hanging on to my construct that hope is a good thing and 
I think in at least Zen practice, hope is considered what? Well, a problem. Yes. So I think for me, it'd be very helpful if someone could distinguish between aspiration and hope, because I see... I, I knew you were going to ask that. Me yeah, too. I, I see embedded in, in aspiration a hope. I, I do. Okay. Well, one is that hope is a goal. And aspiration is like a vector, like a direction. So you don't, you can fail. Like if, if you hope to be a millionaire and you don't get there, uh, you're devastated. But if you're, if you have aspiration toward, let's say having um, enough money to live well, then that's, that's like something that pushes you. That's how I see it. It, it, it um, it's kind of much healthier. How do other people see it? I, I see it as Nelda. I can see how they're so close that it would be a a a, a, a good question. But I mean, I understand what Kim is saying. Maybe maybe hope is more more goal oriented and more more set on that achieving that thing then aspiration is uh, holds it a little more loosely or something so what i'm hearing is and i correct me if i'm wrong that when one sets an aspiration much like the aspiration to keep the the precepts when you somehow do not keep a precept you're not devastated you're not an evil person you're it's it, it's it's okay it's it's sort of a a um a um ideal that you hold to that you work toward but that you don't base your entire identity on if you don't meet that whereas what i'm hearing is that a lot of people in this practice feel like hope is somehow different than that. So I understand that that Mother Teresa only says she only connected with God for one week in her life. And that was her that I'm sure that was her aspiration, but it it wasn't devastating to her. It was fine. I mean, her aspiration was certainly to connect. But if if it was her hope it might, she might go into a deep depression, you know? See, I don't define hope with an absolute clinging to an absolute result. And so I don't see aspiration mm -hmm. hope differently. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I would, my thought is that aspiration is something you're living in in the moment. You know, you you are actually it's something that is happening now where hope tends to get pushed off into the future and it's distracting you away from the here and now. Mm. Um, that's my thought on it. Oh, thank you. That's so good, Donna. That's so helpful because the visual that I got was instead of looking for the path, we are on the path. Yeah, we yeah. I think that's beautiful, Donna. 
Uh, Emily, do you want to add something? <laughs> what do you hope for? <laughs> I don't. Th- it'd be hard to sur- surpass what Donna said. I think. Yeah. I think. <laughs> I, no, I'm sure Emily's got some something insightful to add to it. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. And Dan, do you want to say anything? Uh, my only thought was that hope seems to have some link that we've made to where our well-being somehow is relying on. And aspiration doesn't have that expectation. Hmm. That's a good point, too. Okay. Can you repeat again? I, I couldn't hear. And Nancy. Then, uh, then can you repeat again? Oh, um, I thought that um, a hope somehow seems to imply um are that we're hanging our sense of well-being on it being achieved somehow like actually it's just repeating what other people have said like if it doesn't happen then we fall apart whereas aspiration is just a directional thing i like what you know that expression it's a recipe for failure it seems that hope has that quality but Nelda, you know, sure, we use these words, you know, in so many different ways. And, you know, I don't think you can be faulted if you see them as very similar. Thank you for that, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so who's reading now, Things As They Are? I'm not sure. And where are we? Can anybody remember who read last? I think you read last, Ellen. I did? Okay. Okay, so Emily. (laughs) Uh, Things as they are. Imagine you are living on one side of a huge mountain. On the other side of that mountain is something more wonderful than anything you've ever seen before. You could live there, but since you've never seen it, you don't even know how to picture it. You consider it for a minute, and then you go back to trying to live in the mess you've always lived in. Being in a relationship with a beloved or with life in general can lead us to the other side of the mountain. Not all of the time, not consistently, but more and more. It's difficult to describe, though it's not theoretical. Until you've felt genuine relationship, it's difficult to imagine. Most of us can't exert ourselves for something that we can't see. We exert ourselves to keep fixing what seems fixable. It's usually only when we find we can't fix the things outside of us that practice gets serious. (laughs) The very nature of our practice is to see through the expectations and illusions in our relationships. Pass. I think it's Nancy. No, it's you. The only way to, to see the other side of the mountain is to be with everything. There really isn't another side of the mountain. 
and this side of the mountain. There's just this moment and being with whatever it is or whatever it might be. If you can truly do that and not get lost in our ideas about it, then we begin to see the other side of the mountain. A lot of practice is just patience. You may not quite you may not quite see what has to be done next, but you have to have the patience to just sit down and do your practice. It may seem as though much is happening, but the brain is beginning to release all sorts of things. Things are surfacing. Without patience, life is never going to feel like the other side of the mountain. Even though every moment is the other side of the mountain, there couldn't be anything else. There's always only one thing to do, be with things as they are. Those can seem like symbols, but it's practice, a lot of practice that enable, enables us to do this. Mm-hmm. A dagger passing through. Well, I'm just wondering if we want to stop here and write. What do you think? Let's see how long it is. Maybe finish the next one. So we will go to pop seven next week. It's short. The next one's short. Okay. Okay. A dagger passing through. A teacher's job is to absorb, when necessary, the student's dagger. If those daggers bother you quite a bit, you certainly shouldn't be teaching. Even if they bother you more than once in a while, you shouldn't be teaching. Because if it bothers you, if the dagger causes you pain, you can't see clearly. You are blinded, and the teacher's job is to see a student clearly. When it comes to our close relationships, it doesn't take much of a dagger to arouse that blindness. And the closer the relationship, the more easily the dagger goes in, the more we feel it, and the harder it is to heal. Often, the greatest wounds come from our families of origin. In many ways, we are our parents. There is no way to not be our parents because we come from them. The anger and pain from that relationship is often our greatest wound. But as a teacher, we can learn to hold space so the dagger passes right through. We don't grow up overnight. Yamada Roshi said that Zen practice is all about the development of character. I think that means the ability to hold to your practice when someone is attacking you. You have some idea of what their welfare might be, even as they're going after you. Any teacher who's genuinely trying to do a good job teaching gets attacked all the time. To hold to the surface of another person when your own welfare is being assaulted, that's tough. Sometimes I have a tough time and I'll think, it's time to retire, I'm sick of this. But I continue to practice, then like all of us, I start to experience this reactivity and something amazing happens. There's a moment of sudden comprehension where I see life in a different way and continue to teach. You want to stop here? Uh, No, there's just a little bit to go, Kim. Oh, okay. Um, Teachers, not saviors. The aim isn't to cling to the teacher, but to be free of the teacher. 
Yet until we're truly free within ourselves, our strategies and habits are so strong that we all need somebody to remind us a, a little bit of the path. Of course, your teacher messes up as often as anybody else. Sometimes they don't have any idea what practice is about. This is only a problem if we think they should help fix us. The human dream is to want something or someone to save us. And we have our Zen style for this. A perfect teacher, a perfect practice. I'm not going to save you. I don't even want to. I've got enough things I can do besides that. It's not personal. I'm not trying to save anybody. If there's anything to learn here, you have to learn it by yourself. I can give you some guidance, but believe me, I can't do it for you. And I'm not interested in it, doing it for you. I don't care if you're miserable, okay? Who cares? <laughs> I'm interested in is the only thing that practice can do about anything about, which is helping you get clear and understand your basic core belief. It's this basic thing that I'm most interested in. Deep listening. Are you listening? That's the most important question a teacher or any of us can ask ourselves. <laughs> when I started to teach, I hadn't really learned to listen. When I started to teach, I hadn't really learned to listen. I would listen, and then the next thing I noticed, my mind was off somewhere else. After a lot of training and practice, my mind now stays out of the way more so I can listen. I am more and more aware that my thinking isn't real, and I'm much more interested in staying with what is real. Listening is the greatest gift I can give you as a teacher and the greatest gift you can give another person. When you feel deep listening from another person, you engage, you have hope, you begin to feel, oh, maybe I can do this too. Your life becomes more enjoyable and appreciative. The lives that you touch tend to feel those qualities and they become more enjoyable and appreciative as well. Hey, Nelda, did you notice? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't know why you said that. Uh, Joko Beck said uh, about something about hope when she said, <laughs> you have hope, Joko Beck said. So maybe it's not such a big no-no. Oh, okay. When you feel deep listening from another person, you're encouraged. You have hope. Yeah. Kind of semantics. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, do we know, uh, I mean, have we decided the next book? Since next week yeah. will be the last week, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe. You think so? Because we Seems should tell like that. We should tell Peg. Well, let's yeah, we see. should tell Peg. How many pages are there? Not very many. Yeah. About 15 pages. And we can read afterward for two pages. <laughs> well, uh...
Okay, and Ellen, you know the name of the book. I don't remember it. Uh, you mean, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I've got it upstairs. I mean, it's a, a, a Damon Katagiri's book. I can't th remember the name. Something about um, experience, I think, or energy. Start, a word that starts with an E. I'm sorry, I could go run upstairs and get the book if you need well, me. Well, I, I could Google it. It's Damon Katagiri's book. The book is called, oh. Geez, I'm not finding it. Um, Donna, I think I have a shirt just like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is an old one. Um, uh, yeah, I had the book pulled out, and now I can't find it. I'll go get it. Um, it's right upstairs. <coughs> I need to spell category. It's uh, K-A-T-A-G-I-R-I. -I. It's called The Light That Shines Through Infinity, Zen and the Energy of Life. Oh, okay. I see you found the book. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'll make a note to let Peg know. Well, y'all, um, I'm going to bow out. It's so good to read with you again tonight. See you next Take time. Take care. Good, good night. night. Okay, so let's write for 10 minutes and um, whatever you wanna write about, but it could be about things as they are or about hope or about any other ideas? Deep listening. Deep listening is a good one. The greatest gift you can give someone. Yep. Okay. 10 minutes till 8.10. Emily's deep in thought. Yeah.
Well, who'd like to read first or talk first or hope first? <laughs> I'm not hearing. Is that my fault? Someone uh, talk? Testing. Because no one literally talks. One, two, yes. three. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read first. Came to get okay. started. And, Thank um, you. Oof. So it's just my, it's just real. This is where I am. Except for moments at a time, it's hard for me to listen to myself, to others, to context, to nature, to my Buddha nature. Why? It's my constant anxiety. Nothing triggers it. It's just there, even at my most settled, like the buzz, buzz, buzz of a mosquito looking for a spot to take hold, to strike, causing discomfort, itchiness, and inflammation. It's that discomfort, itchiness, and inflammation of anxiety that distorts what is, um, that distorts what is. Just the way a bad mosquito bite can make us forget how non-itchy and healthy the rest of our body is. It's like walking through life without my bifocals on. Everything far and near is distorted, raising even more anxiety, such a vicious cycle. Sometimes the best I can do is focus on my breath, the miracle of my breath. Um, the world's inside and outside me that my breath reveals. That's what I focus on when the anxiety gets too great. The breath that supports me. And sometimes just that is enough. And although it doesn't seem like a very deep practice, I'm gonna cry, you I'm ever so grateful for the gift of my breath because it's a blessing that connects me, if only for moments, with myself and all of creation. You made me think about my mother because my mother's uh, hearing was very poor, but I would say that she was a very good listener, but not to the words. And if she had been able to hear the words, it might have interfered with her listening. Because uh, she would see right through the person. So, you know, it's more than, than uh, as you talked, I just re remember that it's more than hearing the words. It's getting the person, isn't it? And I have one more little line, so I just needed to quiet my tears enough to say it. I have no words for the joy I experience looking at each of you on my PC. No words. Thank you. We need to call it a Mac. PC sometimes means Windows computer. Okay. So call it an Apple or a Mac Apple, or something. I, my iPad. I don't know how that came to be because it means personal computer, but... But it's usually, have others seen the word used like that? PC meaning Windows? Yeah. 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 Or politically correct. <laughs> and she even has a, a, a Mac with a chip made by Apple. 
the main chip instead of Intel. So it's purely an Apple. Okay. Or, or AMD. Don't forget AMD. Oh, yes. <laughs> did they? I don't think they made the, the M1 chip, did they? They, they were direct competitors with Intel. They actually make Zen chips, but... <laughs> I don't know what a, a Zen chip? Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually more of a graphics thing, I think. Oh. I don't know that much. I don't keep up with that anymore, but... Okay. Uh, who'd like to read next? I can. So there's a drawing. And the drawing is called Being Heard. Oh, <laughs> There are two people. They listen to each other. Epic. They really listen. The words and feelings one emotes goes into the other and permeates their body and soul. The other has now become a perfect mirror of the other. Doubt vanishes and love appears. I have this idea of um, of uh, them no longer being separate. And then um, I've gotten this assignment from um, this person who's he's a psychologist and he's writing this article and he wants me to do a drawing. And this is my uh, assignment. The other and I are simultaneously each other's moons and reflections. Rather than grasping the entire precept of flower, no, the entire percept of flower, the other allows me to handle the emptiness of my own subjectivity. So I have to figure that out. Oh. That's going to be very interesting to express that graphically. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. I think I need it. <laughs> okay, well, who'd like to go next? Oh, or I'll, what? I'll go next because mine is a little bit related to yours. Okay. Um, I, I, I latched on to the deep listening. Joko says that after a lot of training and practice, my mind now stays out of the way more so I can listen. So then I ask, how does the mind get in the way of listening? One of the first rules of good listening is to just listen and not be formulating a response while someone is expressing themselves. That seems very difficult. After all, conversation is based on give and take between speakers. However, if one is busy formulating a response, it's very difficult to give a, the speaker your full attention. It would seem to require that one has faith that an appropriate response will arise after the speaker is finished and that the pace of a conversation can slow and give space and silence for a considered response. Listening, taking part in a conversation is not a debate a challenge to see who can score the most points. A conversation is an exploration where two or more people work to express and expand their understanding by listening in turn. Beautiful. So, I really like that. 
Well, mice really similar. <laughs> we, we, we did this um, in this Hakomi workshop I took. Uh, first, we had to listen to someone with the, and they would tell us a problem and we had to think of a solution. And then we had to listen to them and just listen to them and not think of a solution. And in the first, the first time around, I noticed that I was listening to about 10% of, the, of what they were saying. And 90% of my, my consciousness was, was how I'm going to fix their problem. You know, like the roof fell off of their house. So, and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to get it back up and whatever it was. And then the, the other was like the opposite, like 90% was listening. And also, and I'm just thinking of this now, how relaxed I was with the second one. I can even remember being there. This is um, maybe two, three years ago. Well, and, and being there and being so anxious, you know, because I got to come up with a solution, which is like what you were saying, coming up with a response. It was a good exercise. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Who would like to go next? I can go. I also about active listening. But um, I said that there's such a thing as active speaking and active listening. And both are important. I have to do a lot of active listening. Um when I pay attention to my patients. And I've found that it's very important for me to understand when a patient may not be actively speaking. Um, so at times they might rage like a storm or they get lost in like a fairy tale. Um, and it's uh, self-care for me not to take on what they're what they might be saying actively or passively, um, not to internalize what they're saying. And it's very important for their welfare, for me not to judge them, not to give advice or guide them, especially when they don't ask for it. Um, and I find that that's, I don't know, it's not too hard with patients that I don't know, but it gets harder and harder the closer to me it gets. So like a family member and the hardest to actively listen to is myself. Right at the beginning, you said something. That, what was it about, about, it was very interesting to me about listening, um, active listening. And active speaking? Yeah. And what's active speaking to you? I think that like some people haven't really made the time to sit down and consider their thoughts and consider alternatives to their thoughts and really just take the time to assess like, is this really what I'm feeling? Is there something underneath this thought? Are there several things under this thought? 
I mean, I can't even do that a lot of times. So it's a lot to ask of just a random stranger to do that. So a lot of times I think people don't actively speak um, and it's important to understand that. Uh, is it like, uh, there's a thing in Buddhism called right speech where what you say has to be timely and honest and helpful, that kind of thing. Is it about that or there's something more to it that you're saying? It's like, I think it's different. Like, it's like, it's hard to speak with clarity with self-awareness and I think it's a it's a thing you have to cultivate for sure was this whole this chapter useful or I, I'm sure it must have evoked something this idea of the dagger passing through and trying to you know create that space in you so that you are it sounds like, you know, the dagger definitely passes through emptiness when you don't know, you know, you don't have a deep relationship with the people that you're speaking with. But, you know, as it gets closer and closer to home, it sounds, you know, I, I've never, you know, it, the dagger passing through is just an idea for me, but it sounds like you probably had some actual practice with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's why it's so scary is because for a long time, I thought I was actively listening and that people important to me were actively speaking. And it took a long time for me to understand that that's not the case. Uh, and so I'm learning now how to cultivate actively listening to me mm. to get into that habit. Is that your term actively speaking? I think it's, fabulous yeah is it yours emily that's what i, I think know. it's this yeah i don't know it just came to me as I, as we were reading oh okay it's yours <laughs> quick copyright it okay <laughs> <laughs> And, and write a book. Dan, do you want to... What happened for you? Um, okay. <clears throat> uh, how to step out from the 100-foot pole. Stay in the practice and stay open to what is showing up. Life is offering all the clues. With non-judgmental awareness, we are as one with the whole. The right path is presented to us without any effort on our behalf. This is related to hope versus aspiration conversation. If we are operating from ego, the preferred outcome will be narrow and limited perhaps a different way than what is being presented to us. If we have an aspiration toward a sincere, earnest practice, then life takes care of itself in a loving way. Uh, my wrap-up sentence was, the practice is the path. It is earnest and ongoing openness. And 
I'll just add uh, something else. So part of me feels like with the very intense focus on the practice, then a lot of the things kind of take care of themselves in life. But listening to you all, I'm realizing that part of the reason I'm here is to pay more active attention to those things that are coming up um, those clues or, you know, what people are reflecting back is all part of the experience. And from what I can tell, there's more to the practice here than where I've been coming from. For example, a great conversation like this. So, Thank you. Thank you. Nancy, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> My quite similar to yours, so uh, don't um yeah, so okay. Um yes. So I stopped oh, with the say one thing to Dan as he was just just it flashed through my head this idea of the holding pattern and and that's really new in terms of the path this holding pattern is really important because a path seems like seems like such a linear kind of thing and you move along and you move along and you move along but um but the real challenge in the path is is when you're not moving isn't it when nothing seems to be changing and you know and i've seen that so often with people that that they do fine when they're getting like positive feedback and then nothing happens and nothing happens and nothing happens and we were talking and i was telling nancy i think uh, a week or so ago about the man who in um invented one of the chemicals for photography and how he tried so many different things and you know, he failed and failed. Think of, and I like to think about all the scientists whose life is exact is is completely um, figuring out what doesn't work. Mm. You know, and and that that work needed to be done, and yet yet they got no acclaim for it. And I I don't think they got very much acclaim for it for failing and failing and failing and failing. But but uh, it certainly is necessary. Okay, Nancy. I hope you you're not failing in your and <laughs> your what you're working with. Nancy's working on her PhD in um, educational statistics, right? Yeah. And I fell a lot. <laughs> oh, in fact, we all told her to get help, or she decided to get help, and and then she decided the help wasn't help. And then went back to her original idea, which worked, right? Yes. The funny thing is that I actually still could not explain why I stopped. Like, I have that idea, but I did not proceed. Mm. And then 
I tried many different ways and even seek for help. And I tried their advice, but none of it works. And then I realized, oh, there's one thing I have not tried. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. Sorry for interrupting. It's fine. Okay, so here's what I wrote. Deep, listen, deep listening is really a great gift we can give to each other. Usually, we don't listen to others deeply. We tend to listen in order to respond or criticize. We listen to part of others' speech and think that we know what the other is saying. So we stop listening and stop forming the response. This reminds me of um, a tip on good presentation that I just learned, um, is to listen to other full questions and then pause to think about an answer before giving the answer. So that way we can show others we listen to them deeply and we put thoughts into our answers. So as a result, our answers are more meaningful and direct to others' point. Mm. Also from my own experience, when people listen to me deeply, I can sense it through their eyes and their responses. Also, I can feel the very intimacy in the conversation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's all I have. So really, deep listening is not like naturally we have, so we have to really cultivate through practice. That's neat. I, I had a, a, a photo teacher who, he was my main photo teacher, and he could ask questions. And you would believe that he had no idea of how you might answer them. And that really taught me that most of the times we ask questions, we we know, we anticipate a certain answer. You're supposed to do that in court, aren't you, Nelda? You're actually supposed to anticipate every answer you're going to get from the other side, so that yeah, and then you move to move, move to the next question and the next. You have this whole thing. So he was completely in the opposite. I mean. He, you know, he would say, like, why did you do that? And not have that assumption in his mind. And it, it was such a gift. He was like a little kid, you know, like, why is the sky up there? I mean, it was just like that. And um, he's, he, he's, he's deceased like 45 years ago. But I, I'm in communication with his daughter, and I should ask her if she ever experienced that with him. Um, it, was, it was such a beautiful gift. Yeah, curious minds are among the most beautiful minds. It was purely curious. That's really the word for it. And, and um, there was an attention there, too, that he gave you with that question. A beautiful question. And, and another another uh, photographer who I'd show my work to every year, but he said, he said, uh, what gives you permission to do this? He looked at my work. He said, what gives you permission? And I thought that was such a great question. And then so I worked a year on the, and I actually changed my work and did something that I thought I had more permission to do. And then I went to see him again and showed him my new work. And I said, you know, I've thought a year for, about your question. He said, I didn't mean anything by it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Hey, I, I never trusted that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, our time's up. 
but I'll write Peg about the new book. Peg said that she would join us, so we'll see if she's if she's still able to do that. That's good. So glad you came, Dan. Uh, thank you all so much. Okay. Please come back. Yes. <laughs> yes you're always welcome. Good night. Bye. Good night.